We are continuing our study in the book of Romans. Anybody know what sermon number this is in Romans? 39. All right, 39 sermon in the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 8. Okay, so if you are able, please stand for the reading of today's passage. It is Romans chapter 8. Two verses, verses 12 and 13. And the inerrant, infallible word of God reads as follows. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you leave, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for it is true. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us this morning to live according to the Spirit. Help us understand this morning what it means to be debtors to God for what he has done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So I titled today's sermon, We Are Debtors. Has anyone here ever been or is in debt? It's not fun, is it? And our natural inclination is not to want to pay our debts. Right? I don't my philosophy is I don't want any debts. And with the whole regret in my heart, I just pay it off. That way I don't owe anything. But by and large, do we like to have debts? Like, no, I like people owing me money, right? Even though they don't pay me, but at least I don't owe someone. So what does the scripture have to say about debt? Let us take a quick look. First, we see that the borrower is in a position of disadvantage. That means the debtor is in a position of disadvantage. Proverbs 22, 7. It says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Next scripture talks about being responsible with our debts. Romans 13, 7, it reads, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. I really don't like that one. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So this talks about the responsibility of the believer. Paul is talking to believers in Rome. And he is saying, if you owe, pay. Whether it is financial, whether it is monetary, or whether it is showing respect and honor to who it is owed. Pay that respect. And then next, we are told in Scripture that our biggest debt... It's actually not financial debt. Our bigger debt is a moral debt to God. Matthew 6, 12 says the following. And forgive us our debts. This is us asking our Heavenly Father to forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. A quick side note here. Talking about forgiving debts. As we want God to forgive ours, right? Our moral debt against Him. 
If we forgive others, if we indeed are people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, we will have the power to forgive when we are wronged. It is a sign that we ourselves have been forgiven by God if we can forgive when we are sin against. Remember how it says, him who has been forgiven much, loves much. Meaning that you're going to forgive much. Because your debt was forgiven against God. If indeed you are a believer. So that's first. Secondly, biblically speaking, it's very important. Debt can only be forgiven by the one who is owed the debt. Okay? Somebody else cannot forgive your sins against God. Or bringing it a, a bit closer to home. Let's say that... That's an example. I don't, I don't know if this is true. And if it's true, oh, please forgive me. I didn't know. Let's say the brother Joni owes brother Eric $100. And he's having trouble paying. What would it look like if I come in the picture and I say, Hey, um, brother Eric, brother Johnny, I, as a power vested in me as a pastor, I forgive that debt. Do I have any jurisdiction over that dealing, over that debt? I do not. That is not a debt owed to me. Therefore, be very cautious when we're talking about debt forgiveness, whether it's financial, whether it's moral. A debt can only be forgiven if the one forgiving that debt is the one who is owed the debt. Okay? There is no such thing. It is immoral. It is irresponsible. It is reprehensible. If somebody says your debts are forgiven, but everybody else has to pay for that debt. That is not a biblical concept. Please keep that in mind. Now, as we see what scripture has to say about debt, it tells us to be responsible with the debt. So, in and of itself, debt is not wrong. Foolish debt, unwise debt, that is bad. There's a general principle in scripture that the children of God, as they mature in their walk, they will be more and more wise when it comes to owing not only money, but owing favor to someone, owing respect. As we mature in our Christian walk, we ought to reflect that we have wisdom in the debts we incur. That we show wisdom in showing honor to, who's, to who is owed honor. In responsibly engaging in debt and lending. Otherwise, we can have all the theological jargon down. We can have all the knowledge down. I can quote you many verses. But if my household borrowing lending not only with finances but also showing respect and honor to where is due if that is in disarray that is a sign that i'm actually immature in my faith or at least in an area of my faith because i have knowledge but i don't apply that knowledge according to wisdom wisdom we must not only know the correct stuff but we must act according to the correct knowledge that we have. That is wisdom, knowledge applied. 
So today, with this introduction about debt, we come to two verses. We read them, Romans 8 and 13. Those two verses give us a declaration that we are debtors. We will explore what that means here in a second. And it also shows us a warning what not to do. An exhortation of what we shouldn't do. Okay? So let us take a quick look at what Paul's main point is in this passage. Go ahead and the slides What is Paul's main point in this passage? That Christians are debtors to God. And this debt is properly paid by obedience to God's commandments. Okay? Now, first off, as we look at this title and what we are going to explore that Paul means by this text, let me make something clear right off the bat. God does not need, does not need me or you to pay anything to him. He is not lacking. God is not in any sort of need. As opposed to if something is owed to me or to you, I depend on that in order to survive, in order to pay, in order to get along with my daily livelihood. That is not such the case with God doesn't need anything. Okay? He is not deficient because you owe him something. That is not what we're saying. Secondly, Christians are debtors to God. The context of that is the following. If indeed you have a profession of faith that is genuine, because of what God has done in your life, because of what Christ has done for you, we have an obligation to abide and to obey God. Okay? That is not so that you may be saved. No. Okay? Let's make that very clear. Christians, meaning you are already a Christian, you have a moral obligation. You are in debt to God to obey Him. We do not obey God so that we become saved. No. Salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone. Okay? Let's make that clear. All right. So now, what are the three main focus of today's sermon? We're going to see the following. First, what are the implications of being debtors? Secondly, why is it that we are debtors? Specifically, why are we debtors to God as Christians? And third, we're going to see at a we're going to take a look at a warning of being debtors to the flesh of only paying our dues to the things of the world. Okay, so let us look at that first one: implications of being debtors. Romans eight twelve. He reads, "So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh." So, who is Paul referring to here? He's saying we are debtors. He's saying this to the Christians. He's saying, we brothers. Paul is including himself. He's a Christian. He's writing a letter to the Romans. He is saying, we. So this morning, brothers and sisters, those of you who have a profession of faith, I'm telling you as a Christian, you are debtors to God. We are. This is for Christians. Now, that word that is used there, a debtor, what is that? One of the Bible dictionaries tells us that that is a person who is under a moral obligation to do something. Okay, if you are a Christian, you cannot just sit back, relax, put your feet up, turn on the AC, and watch a movie. Even if it's a Christian movie. That's, that's not all we do. 
We have an obligation. We have a moral obligation. We have to do something. Again, not to be safe, not to be accepted by God. No, that's already a done deal. In short, our moral obligation is, by and large, to deny ourselves of the same lifestyle that somebody in the world will have. Our lives must be different. If an independent party comes and looks at you, looks at me, and there is zero difference between my lifestyle of one of my peers or the lifestyle of one of your peers, and there is no difference, and yet you are a Christian, you are in disobedience. You are not picking up your cross. You are not following Christ in obedience. So then this moral obligation that Paul is talking about is not a debt that we owe to the flesh. He says that, right? We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We'll see shortly what that means. The key implication here is that if we are not debtors to the flesh, what are we debtors to? Right? And Paul doesn't really flesh that out here. But the implication here, if this were to be asked as a question, then to who? The, the rhetorical part of that would be the Christian is under an obligation to live in obedience to God. We are indebted to God. We have a moral obligation to obey and honor God. And that is only possible because the Spirit of God enables us to do so. More of that in a second here. So this obedience is what Scripture refers to when it says that we are slaves to Christ. Okay, And Romans has already talked about this. But let us look at a couple of other references. Ephesians 6, verse 6. The context here is one being a bondservant, to be a bondservant. It says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a bondservant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Two more references. The next one comes in Colossians 3.24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So this is another reference in you are not serving the flesh. You are not serving your own desires of the here and now. You are serving Christ. This is a command for the Christian. Okay. And then 1 Peter 2.16. It says, again, referring to Christians, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as a servant of God. Okay. Let me reiterate this. Cannot emphasize this enough. This is not referring to being good so that God will accept you. This is not what we're talking about. You can be as good as you want. God will never accept you on those terms. Never. Okay? You will be condemned on your way to hell if you think that you can be good enough so that God can accept you. Never happen. Okay? I'll tell you what that is likened to. That is like us that our parents telling our kids... If you want to be my child, you better behave. That's absurd. My children misbehave all the time. They are my children. And my plea to them, and the plea of every parent here to their children, children, please listen up, is 
that you are children of your parents. Therefore, obey them. You're not going to earn the right to be a child of your parents. You already are. Your parents love you. Therefore, obey them. How much more with our Heavenly Father? If indeed we are children of the true living God, He has saved us. He has adopted us. Brother James is going to preach on that next Sunday. Being adopted by God. And because of that, because of that love that God has for us, because we are now children of God, our moral obligation to God is to obey. And that moral obligation should be something that the Christian takes joy in doing, ultimately, even if it's hard to abide and to obey and to get our mind and our flesh and our desires in line with what God wants. Is that easy? No way. That's actually impossible. The only reason we can do it is because the Spirit of God lives in us and we have the resources to abide in obedience. So then we are Christians and we are told to obey. In other words, you're a Christian, now act like it. It is not obey so that you can become a Christian. No. So then for the Christian, we are debtors. Who are we debtors to? We just see we're debtors to God. And this makes us bond servants. This makes us slaves of our loving master, King Jesus. So then if for the Christian we're debtors, what about the non-Christians? Okay. If you do not have a profession of faith in, in Christ, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, like well, what about you? Well, let's take a look at it again at Romans 8, 12. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So by implication, if you are not a Christian, if you don't have a profession of faith in Christ, if you don't call yourself a Christian, it means that you are a debtor to the flesh. And that you do live only according to the flesh. There are those who are debtors to the flesh. This is what Christians, Paul says, should not do. So here then, we see that not only is the Christian a debtor to God, but also the non-Christian is a debtor to who? To the flesh. Here, the debt speaks of not only a moral obligation, but of instead of a moral obligation, to a moral deficiency that the non-Christian cannot abide. The non-Christian cannot obey God. The non-Christian cannot even understand the things of God. Those things are foolishness to him or her. And therefore, the only thing they have going for them as non-Christians is to be enslaved to do what the flesh asks them to do. There's no power to restrain there is no desire for the things of God. Not even an awareness that you need repentance. And you only keep paying your dues into an endless pit to reaping, sowing what your flesh wants. Romans 6.20 reads as follows. We already saw this, right? A few uh, months back, maybe a couple months. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control... You were free from the control of righteousness. Is that right? I might have gotten that reference wrong. Somebody double check me on that. In any case, the context here is that Christians were formerly 
slaves to sin. That's the default position of every human being. If you're a Christian right now, at one point you were a slave of sin and you were serving only the desires of your flesh. If you are not a Christian right now, you are still doing that. You are a slave to sin and there is no room for you to have righteousness. The type of righteousness is not that I'm better than my neighbor. No, that doesn't count. The type of righteousness in which God will say, you indeed are righteous. Because that is attained only by faith in Christ. So when God the Father sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus in you. 2 Timothy 2.26. This is in the context of giving instruction to the Christians to be good witnesses, to be patient with those that don't believe. And it says this, And they, those outside of Christ, may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the non-Christian then is not only a slave to sin. They are captured. They are ensnared to the devil. And they do the devil's will. There's no room for neutrality. There's no room for somebody to say, I am either too young or I'm too old. Or, you know, I don't hate God. I just don't believe. Nope. Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me. If you are not a Christian, you are an enemy of God. You are ensnared by the devil, doing his will. And what is really troubling is that when even we as former non-believers, we are not even aware of that, that we are in such state. And it takes an intervention from God for him to open up our mind, our understanding, our hearts for us to realize, oh, wow. I'm, I'm actually in a very bad position. I'm actually against God. I need His forgiveness. I need a Savior. God is the one who grants us that understanding. So then, those who are not brothers, as Paul is referring here to, right, brothers, we are, in, in, we are debtors to God. Those that are not brothers, that are not Christians, are slaves to sin and only live to please themselves and they don't even realize that they are captured by the devil and are serving him. In summary then, verse 12, the first verse for today, Paul is telling the Christians that they are not in obligation to continue in the things of the flesh, but rather that you are under a moral obligation which you are capable of doing to obey God. Okay? So we're debtors to God, but why are we debtors? Why are we debtors? That takes us to point number two. We are debtors for the following reasons. I've compiled a list from mainly Ephesians chapter 1 and lastly from John 6. We are debtors to God because of what He has done for us. God has blessed us in Christ, Ephesians 1 3. Christ has chosen us in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4. God has predestined us to be saved, Ephesians 1, 5. God has made us acceptable, accepted to Him, Ephesians 1, 6. God has redeemed us, Ephesians 1, 7. God has abounded toward us. He has lavished His blessings upon us. 
Ephesians 1 8. God has given us an inheritance, Ephesians 1 11 and 14. God has sealed us, it's a done deal, Ephesians 1 13. And lastly, reference from John chapter 6 47, it says that God has given us eternal life in Christ. This is only a quick recap. We could go on and on about the blessings that God has given His children. And by the way, those blessings are not deserved. It's not that somebody was doing pretty well, so God decided to reward them. It's the total opposite. Just like the children of Israel were chosen as a nation to be the people of God, we are told in the scriptures that they were chosen not because there was something great in them, but because they were the most insignificant. In like manner, those that have been chosen in Christ and been blessed and saved and redeemed and given eternal life, it is not that we did something that we should pat ourselves on the back. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced of this. I'm one who least deserved to be redeemed and saved and predestined. When we realize that, we can start to understand the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God. But that cannot happen until we realize the dire condition that we're in being enemies of God. We need to realize that first. Someone has noted that basically the only religion that has a correct belief system, which is Christianity, is that in order to be forgiven, first you need to plead guilty. Right? And it's true. If you, and, and that means completely guilty, deserving the death penalty. And unless we realize that, we don't understand the concept of how wicked we are, how holy God is, and the desperate need for forgiveness that we have. As non-believers to become Christians, and then as Christians in order to walk a life of sanctification. We need that every day. I can ask, well, I did pretty well today. Today I didn't, I didn't need God's forgiveness. Even if I did right there, I failed. Because now I'm being proud, right? So the standard is so high that only God himself in Christ, God becoming flesh, fulfilling the requirements for us to be right with God. Okay? So then that was, why are we debtors, right? We can go on and on about why we are under obligation to obey God as Christians. All right, third point. There's a warning of being debtors to the flesh. This is what Christians are not to do. Romans 8.13. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now the syllogism here is pretty straightforward. Paul is telling us, if someone lives according to the flesh, you will die. Now, the implication here is that everybody's going to die, right? Unless the Lord returns and takes us as we are in this current body. But I would probably bet it's not going to be the case, right? Could be wrong. Nevertheless, everybody will die. But Paul says here that if you follow, if you live according to to the flesh you will die what Paul means here is that an unregenerate person even someone who has claimed to be a Christian but it's not a Christian 
and live a lifelong pursuit paying their dues to the things of the flesh, they still remain in the trespasses and sins. And upon their physical death, they will pass on to eternal spiritual death, condemnation. You will die. That's why the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Not only in the fall of humanity, but also in the very real sense that an unregenerate person, someone who is not a Christian, and passes from this life, when the physical body dies, they go on into eternal destruction. Okay? So Paul gives us an alternative to living according to the flesh. This is very important. Romans 8.13, the second part of that says, But if by the Spirit... See, that's the alternative. Not according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We can look at this as an imperative. Something that Paul would want, would expect Christians to do. The command to continuously be killing our sin. And how does the saying go? If we're not continually killing our sin... Our sin is killing us. So what are the deeds of the body that we should put to, to, uh, to rest, that we should kill? Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So one that stands out immediately, the first one that Paul gives there, sexual immorality. My friends, there's nothing new under the sun. As we see the scriptures, one of the main things that made great men of God fall is sexual immorality. True then, true now. This is what we physically can do with our bodies in order to please our flesh. Now, it says sexual immorality. It doesn't say sex, okay? Because that is something instituted by God to take place in the context of marriage. And it is to be enjoyed. And God is glorified by that. Okay? We are warned of sexual immorality. Put that down. And then the other highlight there would be covetousness. This is not necessarily physical, right? But rather, that longing to want to have what is not mine. To go after that next dollar. To go after that next gadget. To stack up more admiration or respect from our peers. I don't have that and I really want it. I'm not content with what God has given me. I want something else. Okay, so those are just a very quick recap of what we are told to put to death. Got to put to death those deeds, those emotions, feelings, desires. Now, it says that we can put those to death. How? What is the condition? This is by the Spirit. Okay? This is what will enable a believer to be able to put to death the things of the flesh. This is the resource that is available only to believers. When we are in conflict, when we are in temptation, when we are in anger, when we are fill in the blank. 
We are told, you are told as a believer, that you have the resources because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you to put those things to death. First, to deny yourself from it and to say no and don't do it. Or if you're caught in that sin, to say this is, this is not it. I better repent. And my brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit of God does not convict you, that is a major red flag. That means that the Holy Spirit may not be in you. The Holy Spirit enables and makes us obey. Otherwise, you will not be content. The Holy Spirit will not leave you alone. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is who? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I would advise never let someone quote you that verse 12 alone. Because then they can make you believe like, you got to do something, man. You, you better get on it in order for you to be saved. You got to work it out. Verse 13 tells you how that happens. Which is the context of the point I'm making. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you. It is that that will make you want to repent. Will make you want to change. And you will have the power to do what is right. That is something that unregenerate people do not have. Okay. And I reiterate that is why if you think that you're going to earn God's favor by being good. You will never be good enough. On your best day you're not good enough. You need the righteousness of Jesus instead. So then we are empowered by God. He's the one who gives us the will and the ability to do it. But here's a very important question. Whose responsibility is it when it comes down to it? To deny the sin, to say no, to flee. Whose responsibility is it? Paul tells us. Let's look at that verse again. Romans 13b. A13b. It says, But if by the Spirit you... Put to death the deeds of the body. There it is. By the Spirit, God's already given you what you need. Now, you need to put to death the deeds of the body. There's no excuses for the Christian. There's no excuses to live in perpetual sin. God has empowered His people with His Holy Spirit. So that you may make progress in your sanctification. Okay? I'll give you another clarification here. We do not believe in perfectionism. In the notion that because I'm a Christian now, I don't sin anymore. That is not biblical. That is not what we're saying. What we are saying is that as God matures us as believers, as we desire to please God, we're not going to be sinless, but as we look back, we will sin less. Okay? That's our progress in our sanctification. Sometimes I think of it as when you look at an investment curve, right? It goes up, comes down, up, down. And if you were to just focus on that one week, man, that took a dive. What's going on? You zoom out. Oh, no. Okay, I was down here. Okay. Hey, I'm making progress. Praise God. A lot of times that's how our sanctification looks. By my... My brothers and sisters, if you zoom out and all you see is a huge dive, that's not good. 
That's not good in our sanctification. So then, what do we make to this? What are we to make of this? If we do not want to be in God's word, and we remain that way, if we do not want to pray, and we remain that way, if we do not want to congregate at a local church, and we want to remain that way, if we are not currently accountable and open to our fellow brothers and sisters about our sins and our struggles, and we are okay in staying that way, then we do not have the desire to put to death the deeds of the body. My brothers and sisters, let's be honest, is that us today? How many of us can say, you know what, yeah. I know that God has given me the resources to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But no, honestly, I don't want to. I'm good. I'm enjoying it. Or maybe ah, I'm miserable, but if I speak out or if I talk to a brother or a sister, man, what are they going to think? Well, I tell you, if we mature in our faith, one of the things that you probably be told is like, hey, brother, sister, I'm struggling with the same thing. I'm glad you brought it up. You are not alone in your struggle and in your walk. So may it never be, my brothers and sisters, that we are in a stagnant place, in an unrepentant sin, and that we remain in it. May it never be. Paul says that we are empowered by the Spirit to be accountable and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And the consequence of that says, if we do that, it says we will live. Obviously, we're alive physically. So he doesn't mean just that. He means we will live spiritually, eternally. And those promises that we read from Ephesians and John 6. It's like, yes, those do apply to me. And we do have eternal life. We will live. Now, before we look at the final reflections for today, for the sermon. Although if we live according to the Spirit, it says that we will live. And the ultimate meaning of that is spiritually eternally there is also a lot of truth that if we obey God we will live longer We're not guaranteed a bus might come and hit me this afternoon hopefully it won't but generally speaking when we obey God when we walk in the commandments of God when we do what God tells us to do generally speaking we will live a longer life and when we don't do that not only are we affecting ourselves, but we are affecting those around us by the disobedience to God, by the constant lifestyle of rebellion against God. So even for the physical, for the here and now, this also has application. Okay, so final thoughts, reflections of today's sermon. Let us remember, my friends, we are debtors. That's number one. As Christians, we are debtors to God to obey Him. Because we are His children. Not in order to become, no. Because we are His children. We are debtors because He has given us the adoption as His children. A changed nature, a changed heart that want to please God. We are debtors. Secondly, let us please remember, when we come to God, we come to Him as debtors not creditors we cannot come to God and say well God you know I'm here because 
I think I deserve this and that and the other. Or because I've had it pretty rough and it's about time you give me a break. We come to God as debtors. God does not owe you anything. Nothing. As a matter of fact, if we are in rebellion with God or if we are questioning God, the very breath, the very mind you use to question God, He's giving you that ability by His grace. You don't even deserve that. God does not owe us anything. Lastly, what shall we do? Well, that syllogism Paul had there in, in verse 12 is very easy. Put to death the sinful deeds of the flesh so that you may live. And I would add so that you may show a sign that indeed you are a Christian because there's fruit in our lives. God has given us the resources as Christians to fight, to be in that war with sin that Paul so lively described in chapter 7. And let us remember that as we are empowered by the Spirit, you have no excuse. It is our responsibility. Paul says, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. God has already done what He promised to do. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Now it is our responsibility. And I'll read it one last time. Not to keep your salvation, not to gain favor with God, but because you are a child of God. It is your moral obligation. So let us remember, as we think about debts and we cannot come to God as creditors, but only as debtors, let us remember this, that we may be encouraged. The biggest debt that we had with God as Christians has been paid for by Jesus. Okay, That's an eternal debt that you can never pay, I can never pay. And Jesus paid it by his virgin birth, his perfect life, his death upon the cross, his burial and resurrection, so that all who would believe in the righteous, perfect word of Jesus and repent from sin would be forgiven and have eternal life. Jesus has paid the biggest debt that we had. And for those that cannot claim that yet, turn to, John, turn to Christ, to Jesus in repentance, trust in Him. For forgiveness of your sins. And those promises of having the Holy Spirit so that you can fight sin will be yours. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for enabling us to understand your word, for granting us repentance of sin. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us the power to say no to sin. And even more, to hate sin and to love you. Lord, Please have patience with us. Give us your grace for we have a high view of your commandments because it reminds us of who you are, of your holiness. So therefore, oh Lord Jesus, convict us unto obedience for our own good and so that it would be a way for us to show your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.